0: all ninjas calling all ninjas it's time for Lyme Ninja Radio hello I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey and this is episode number 155 of Lyme Ninja Radio every journey through Lyme disease is different and cookie cutter approaches just don't work you need to think like a ninja in today's episode we have a special format today. Aurora and I traveled down to the Big Apple, New York City, last week.
1: Woke up at two in the morning to take a to drive down to Poughkeepsie to take a train, to walk, to get to Central Park to finally get to the building. It was quite
0: the adventure. <laughs> it was <Go> <laughs> We spare no effort to bring you the most up-to-date information about Lyme disease here at Lyme Ninja Radio. Yes, we're, we're <laughs> on the So instead of interviewing experts today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be chatting about what we learned at this conference and going over some research that was presented by some fascinating researchers out there, yeah. and just to give you some insight into what's going on behind the scenes and what's being developed. And in the Lyme disease world, I think it's very, very encouraging. Yes. There, There is hope out there. Yes. But before we get into the details of that, let's review our top 10 listening cities. Yes. So we do this as a fun way of highlighting that we know you're out there all over the country and actually all over the, the world. world. And. We created a little contest, so if you're not in our top ten and you want to get up there, just get a bunch of friends and binge listen to Lime Ninja Radio, (laughs) and you will probably climb up the charts.
1: Right. And uh, starting at number ten is Boonville, New York. Which is
0: local to us.
1: Yes, I know. Hi, neighbors. Hi, neighbors.
0: (laughs) Number nine is Winchester, Canada. Oh, Canada.
1: Number eight, Skowhegan, Maine.
0: Number seven, Portland, Oregon.
1: Number six, Burlington, Connecticut.
0: Not Vermont. Come on, Vermont. <laughs> number five, Sacramento, California.
1: Number four, Ansonia, Connecticut. Number
0: three, San Francisco, California.
1: Way to represent San Francisco. Number two, Apex, North Carolina.
0: And number one this week is
1: Kelowna, Illinois. Congratulations, Kelowna. Way to go,
0: Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Aurora. Tell us a little bit more about today's topic, the Next Gen Conference, Lyme Disease in the Era of Precision Medicine.
1: So this conference is the second annual. It's quite new and was founded by Joelle Dudley, who's the director of the Institute of of for next generation healthcare over at Mount Sinai.
0: If you're hearing noise in the background, that's yes. Rusty, Rusty the rescue dog. Yeah. And when he's acting this way, we call him Rustolium. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit creaky. It's <laughs> an older dog, so please ignore the snuffling. Sometimes he'll snore. <laughs> We're way off topic here. Yeah, back to the conference.
1: Anyway, back to uh, Joel Dudley. Anyway, so this was this is being hosted by Mount Sinai and funded by the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation, which I should add has donated up to forty million dollars for Lyme disease research, which is incredible. Way to go. I know. So, and um, it included presentations by. The University of San Francisco's Charles Chu, epidemiologist at Jessinger Health Systems, Anne-Marie Hirsch. Geisinger. Geisinger. It's Pennsylvania. They're all German out there. Yes. Yes. Um, The University of California in Davis, Nicole Baumgarth, Virginia Commonwealth University, Richard Marconi, and the University of Maryland, Joe Pedra. Joe Pedra.
0: It was a very exciting conference. It's always great to be in a room full of researchers. They're so dedicated to their work. They really know what they're doing. And they're inter- asking some interesting questions about Lyme disease and taking a look at it. And we're going to briefly go into their presentations. We can't do it justice. We're not scientists.
1: Uh, like I said, I didn't... and. Like, for example, I didn't know what OSP A versus OSP C was. I had to ask my dad. So, And I
0: know some of you out there are highly technical and understand this, and it, it gets into some very interesting technical aspects of why Borrelia is so difficult to detect and treat and And create a vaccine for for that matter, I know some of you out there are opposed to the vaccines, no matter what, but chances are there will be a vaccine out there, uh, whether you like it or not and I don't mean that as an insult it's just it's going to come out there, it will come to market, so it's best to be educated Inf- yeah, about
1: and it. informed about it, and so you can make your own decisions about
0: whether to take it, yeah, recommend to your friends uh, so forth and so on. Yeah. So that's why we present this information, not as an endorsement either way, just to let you know what's going on behind the scenes there. Yes. Aurora, why don't you start off with the keynote presentation? It was a fascinating discussion by Dr. Chu. Who's out of UC San Francisco. Francisco.
1: Francisco. Yep. So Dr. Chu is a microbiologist and infectious diseases physician, and he has pioneered the development of a piece of technology. Uh, yeah, it's nanotechnology that's th- that has turned into this. It's no, it's like it's literally the size of a bar of soap, and it's this incredible diagnostic technology that, as long as you have the software, you can plug into somebody that a doctor, I should say, can plug into their laptop and be able to diagnose almost anything dozens. dozens.
0: dozens. And so, let's. Go through. So first of all, it is this tiny little black box, yeah. literally, plugs into a couple of laptops. Oh, a couple of The laptops. systems they have now runs off a couple of laptops, and it uses nanotechnology to sort through the proteins in body fluid, particularly yeah. blood serum, and separate out proteins from RNA, DNA that belong to infectious agents. Yes. Such as Lyme disease. Such
1: as Lyme disease, yeah. Now,
0: it didn't seem like he's very far in the Lyme disease diagnostic yet, but that's something that they're starting to build into the system.
1: Yes. And he – well, he started off the – he started off his presentation with this uh, acknowledgement that the the Western blot and the IgG diagnostic testing we have – is not accurate. So he was presenting his technology as a way to bypass the bad testing that we have and give us something accurate. And he was giving us numbers like he can... Increase the accuracy of diagnosis, like up to ninety percent, and right now we have sixty percent. maybe <laughs> I'm being kind right, right now. Somewhere in the
0: neighborhood between thirty and sixty, maybe. Yeah, thirty and 70. anyway, depends on who you ask. Right? It's not very good. No. Let's leave it at that. So that's one of the takeaways from this conference: is everybody there, every researcher knew that the current state of testing for Lyme disease is abysmal. That was without argument. Nobody even spent any time defending that point of view. It was just assumed. Yeah. So that's good news. Yeah. And so we are starting to see many, many more research groups come out with testing strategies. Dr. Choose is very interesting. It's in the research stage, so it's not ready to be rolled out to a doctor's office yet but he did have some stories where it was used for practical applications
1: with great effect. So I shouldn't
0: start the beginning of the story. Yeah. So this anecdote. That so his,
1: so this one anecdote he had is, uh, a couple had, was on, uh, was on honeymoon in Hawaii and they had come back to Minnesota. Was it somewhere in the Midwest, somewhere in the Midwest? And they had come down with a, terrible sickness like they had to go to the they had to go the, to the er it was that, it was that bad
0: feeling terrible and so they start going through the sequence of testing yeah and they ran out of tests to run yeah. in the hospital there they did 20 separate tests yeah
1: they sent it to the icc and nothing was coming up positive so it was the last the,
0: the icc
1: sorry cdc okay. sorry about that cdc so they finally sent a blood was it a blood sample yeah blood yeah samples. blood sample to Doctor Chu's lab, and again this they had done twenty tests over the span of like a month or something like that, and within twenty four hours, Doctor Chu was able to diagnose them, and the indicators came up for this rare parasite a rare
0: parasitic infection yeah. So the difference, what's exciting about this is up to this point, they were one at a timing the test. That's yeah. the way it's done. So you really have to kind of based on a physician's experience or going through the signs and symptoms, pick and choose which tests you're going to run. Yeah. So you're not just going to run 20 tests. Normally you start with, okay, here's, we're going to test for this, rule it out. So it comes back positive or negative. So they're hoping to be with their experience again, yeah. choose the right test. But we know the limitations on testing from the Lyme disease side. You can have Lyme disease and the test can come back negative. So they just move on to the next one. With this technology, instead of testing for just one set of immune system, IgG, antibodies like that. They're they're testing for
1: the bacteria itself.
0: The proteins with it. Yeah. So they can test for any foreign proteins and start to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. So it's nanotechnology. It sorts through... The proteins in the blood, and the computer begins to put aside that which belongs to human beings, right, genetically, and identifies these foreign proteins. And out of the database that's in probably that second computer, it's then starts comparing these proteins and they showed real time within 15 minutes, they can make a diagnosis. And some, if you're getting deeper into the woods and more rare things, it takes more time to run through their database. So it can take 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. While this technology is not on the market per se yet, it's available. It's research. So you're not, doctor can't order it, but, they could get in contact with Dr. Chu for these rare cases. So it's not going to be covered by insurance. It's not something you can order normally through testing services, but in rare cases. So if you're really struggling out there, that might be an avenue to talk with your Lyme lawyer doctor. Maybe you could send a sample out there. Maybe they can find something there. You said the cost right now is 500 500 bucks. So it's not cheap. And he said the price of the technology will come down just like all technology does is they're able to ramp up the construction of it, uh, the building of it, the manufacturing of it and do it more in bulk. So they have greater numbers of these test boxes out there.
1: And economy of scale. There we go. That's the word you're looking for. I was totally looking for economy
0: (laughs) of scale out there. And he's not the only group that's working on similar systems where instead of throwing one little fishing line out there, trying to identify one or like one little rule. Ro- Have you ever been fishing So you use different lures for different fishes? Right. And so you're trying to hook the one specific type of fish. So that's what we're doing right now with testing. Instead of casting this broad net, this new technology allows you to just say, okay, there's some infectious thing in there. We're going to test for a hundred infections at the same time. And it'll give you the results from that. And that's fantastic. That's an amazing breakthrough and that'll bypass all the bottleneck and the false negatives we have with Lyme disease. I'm really looking forward to that. So his technology is out there. TGen is going into their technology out of the group out of Phoenix. They're doing blood draw here at SUNY Adirondack and they're actually in clinical trials now. So their test will be out to the public in the next year or so, hopefully that, and that'll be really exciting. It's going to blow the lid off of Infectious diseases.
1: Not, I think, not only Lyme disease too. Just well,
0: all the co-infections,
1: yeah,
0: for sure. Right, I'm pretty sure the TGen test is going to be looking at about thirty different infections. The thing about Doctor Chu's little black boxes, it does dozens and oh, dozens, hundreds, right? Yeah, yeah. but that might be you know a more sophisticated test we're not we're not quite sure whether that'll end up so hopefully Dr. Chu will get some funding to bring this out to the market and make it available in doctors offices they did show this one setup where they were testing it in the field they had the two laptops for the zika virus, for the zika virus. yeah so this is out there being used currently so if you're really stuck with your Lyme disease and you're thinking there's some weird co-infections also in there with you or maybe a chance of a tropical disease as well because of some travels you've done to a foreign country, give Dr. Chu's lab a call or have your doctor call. Maybe there's something there they can help you with. All right, let's move on to our next presentation. So that was the keynote number one.
1: That was the keynote, and then the per, the per, the what, what do I call her? A researcher, and she's an epidemiologist. There we go. Her name is Dr. Anne Marie Hirsch, and uh, she is working with the Geisinger, not Jessinger, but Geisinger Health System over in uh, Pennsylvania.
0: She plopped down in our table next to us, yes. and it was very exciting to have her write with us. So we kind of chatted her up a little bit and figured out that she was a presenter. Yeah, and she gave us a little highlight beforehand, so we cheered very loudly. She yes, when she got we up did. There. <laughs> We're a fan now.
1: Yes, and she is one of the first people that's working with this. Available big data, and could you could you give a little background about that because i didn 't really know about that before the presentation started, like I could see what she was doing with it, but
0: starting with the health care uh, the health what am I trying to say here the the health care bill that went through a while ago i 'm okay. trying not to call it Obamacare, but that 'll just help my mind go. The Obamacare that came through. What is it now? Four years ago, something like that. There were a bunch of different pre- provisions in that bill, and one of them was electronic health records. Mm. So there's all kinds of incentives for doctors to get online and start sharing their data. So there's this massive amount of data, especially within a big health system like Geisinger up around here at Excellus, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. So these companies have this now this massive amount of data. They're trying to figure out what to do with it. So, doctor. Hirsch is particularly interested in Lyme disease, because that's a big problem down in Pennsylvania. And taking this data and can they then use this data to help the physicians in the office be more proactive in testing and looking for the data in Predicting where the Lyme disease is yes. or moving through, and so that's that's what they're doing. So it's yeah. really it's really cool.
1: And, and they're working with and they're working with Johns Hopkins and to filter it through like this kind of public health thing. Absolutely. So they were doing things like, oh, is there is it different kinds of people that are getting that are getting sick? Is it where they live? And there was actually something that was that really interesting that showed up which is that if you live within half a mile of a woodland, a wooded area, you are nine times more likely to get Lyme disease. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And so they're layering the diagnostic information that's in this database with where the patient lives, with satellite information about the yeah. Topography, like what's the vegetation in the area? It's really highly sophisticated. It's on one hand, right. On one hand, it's very highly sophisticated. The other hand, it's a pretty simple algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. Because we know people travel all over the place, right? Nobody stays with it just in a half mile of their home. So they could contract the Lyme disease somewhere else and bring it back with them, right? Even with those confounding factors, there's still enough of a variation there to make it much more likely so what this does and it's gonna start and i think we'll start seeing this hopefully in once they've sorted through how to do this with other health systems is you won't get a doctor in the in the area saying oh you don't have lyme disease like no pay attention here look this this area you're nine times more likely to have it so this better be something that you're asking your patients And that's the direction it's going to really bypass this whole oh, Lyme disease doesn't exist. The other very interesting little tidbit that came out of this was Lyme disease was more likely to be diagnosed during the summer rather than the fall or the spring where the ticks are theoretically more active. Now, you had a little pet theory on that.
1: I had a pet theory that it was because of the May Lyme disease awareness month.
0: And if that's the case, good job out there. Guys. I know, right? Talking about it, keep talking about it. And it could be. Yeah. Right? Or it could just be that's where they're they're bit early in the season and that's when things start manifesting a little yeah. bit. We really don't know. But that was an interesting tidbit. It was like two and a half times more likely to be diagnosed in yeah. the summer. Yeah. All right so it's tell
1: like statistically us, significant anyway yes,
0: definitely statistically statistically significant, and this really fits in with Mount Sinai 's project of using big data in ways but then they also want to layer it with genomic factors, with nutrigenomic factors, with epigenetic factors, on and on. So this is just a first step, baby step. Matter of fact, I want to defend her a little bit. There are some really rough questions coming from the audience about this uh, kind of poo-pooing this first step. But you got to start somewhere. And there's nobody else. That they're doing. They they don't even know how to formulate the questions yet. Yeah. So you got to stand somewhere. So we, you yeah. you go Geisinger.
1: Yeah, and it's like, and just to add one more thing onto that is like they don't even have a good way to define who has Lyme disease yet.
0: Yes. Right. Which
1: just kills me a little bit.
0: But it's it's a legitimate question. So yeah. you can't just go into the. Database and say people diagnosed with Lyme because we all know there's so many misdiagnoses. So they try to broaden the definition of people who were tested for Lyme, people who fit certain treatment criteria, like were treated with prophylactic antibiotics. Good. And things like that. So it's, it's very interesting. So they're trying to sort this stuff out. Uh, if they went as they, they will, I'm confident they will, they'll begin to be, get more and more sophisticated as time goes on. Okay. Moving on to the next speaker. Yes. How many do we have, by the way?
1: We have, well, we have, uh, three more. Okay. All right. Moving right along. Yes. Um, <laughs> so the next speaker was Dr. M- Nicole Baumgarth and her, she is, um, a professor of immunology at uh, UC Davis at the University of California in Davis and her presentation was something that I was quite uh, interested in because she her research is focusing on the immune response to the, the not not human but mouse. the immune re- response in mice, M- mice to mouse, the yeah. to the Lyme disease bacteria
0: and this is Fascinating. This is really she was pushing the researchers in the room to consider her point of view. And there was a little there, there was, was a little push pushback back from that. And so this is what she found out. So mice don't get sick from Lyme disease. However, they have special mice, and that's most studies are done with various species of special mice, where they knock out, quote unquote, knock out certain genes. And when you take out the genes within the mouse, Certain functions don't work. So she was studying what's called wild type mouse. So that means no genetic variants versus these two models of mice that had different parts of their immune system knocked out. It had something to do with some of the white blood cells. Do yeah. It man?
1: was the B cells, the
0: B cells versus T cells.
1: Yeah, it was B cells versus T cells. Yep. And it was, okay.
0: Aurora just well, it got was a big smile on her I, face. It, okay, was, just, it was
1: so cool. In the wild-caught mice, there were no symptoms. In the mice with the T-cells, there were no symptoms. Mild symptoms. There were mild symptoms. But it was the mice that didn't have the B-cells that got the worst effects of the Lyme disease.
0: We're not doing justice to her research. However, I am not
1: at all. (laughs) Her
0: her takeaway point was that not only does the bacterial load matter, but the host immune response matters. And this is huge. And this goes back to like Bob Miller's genetic research work that he's doing with Nutra genetics, methyl genetics, and other people's work, uh, that the, the status of the host matters tremendously. So if you're minerally depleted, if you're nutritionally depleted, if you have certain genetic polymorphisms, perhaps you may be more susceptible to the Lyme symptoms right off the bat, regardless of whether you've got a high bacterial count or a low bacterial count. So up to this point, the standard model is the worse the symptoms, the higher the bacterial count in the body. And she said, there's another factor Yeah, and it, this is going to push the research to really get more into the genetic side of things and the status of the host. And it's so critically important. We see that again and again in Lyme disease that your own particular milieu yes. <laughs> <laughs> matters. It's like you matter. It's not just the bacteria. The bacteria are part of the equation, but you are at least as big. And that's why you need the ninja skills. That's our kind of tagline about that. It's like you need to figure as much about yourself as you do the disease. You know, where your stress is coming from. Where is your spirit? Are you, have you given up? Are you having suicidal ideations? Are you mineral depleted? Are you nutritionally depleted? So forth and so on. Is it absolutely important? Yep. All right. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns, that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, It's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did.
1: The bottom line is I was very excited about uh, Dr. Baumgarth's research, and I was a little bit sad that I could not understand more of what she was saying. (laughs) She She was making me wish her microbiology degree.
0: (laughs) She exactly the other thing, she flew through her presentation. She said, Oh, I don't have time to get into this, but this is really significant. And then she'd move on to another slide. Oh, no, they were feeling crushed for time. They only had about 20, 30 minutes to speak. Yes, yes. Anyway,
1: so uh, as opposed to Dr. Richard Marconi, who had you could tell he was polished in speaking to.
0: We're trying to we figure this out. We think it was
1: investors.
0: So he either has a lot of experience, yes. Well, the, the pre- first of all, the presentation. So we have to make a, a some fun out of this. Yes. <laughs> he had really cool computer-generated graphics, right, that cost must have cost a fortune.
1: They were super fancy.
0: But he's part of the group from University of Virginia. Mm-hmm.
1: University to- of G- Virginia.
0: No, but what – here, look up on his sheet what it is. It's not well, actually University of Virginia. It's well,
1: it's Van- Well, it's um
0: Virginia Commonwealth, VCU. Yeah, yeah, that's different than University of Virginia. Oh. UVA versus VCU. Anyway. Oh, at sorry, VCU. UVA and VCU. Please don't there's send a forks. Yes, we know there's a difference. <laughs> anyway, they are the ones that came up with the new canine vaccine dog vaccine yes and they, he was presenting the outer surface protein A versus outer surface protein C yes and this is very interesting because the old because we've been talking about the old vaccine yes. the limericks vaccine which is based on the outer surface protein A A and the problems it had, either working or not working, or whether it gave people Lyme. I mean, that's the, let's leave that aside right now. But let's stick with his presentation and the technical aspects of yes. this. Outer surface protein A is expressed on ticks that are inside, I'm sorry, ticks, on the bacteria that are inside the ticks, but have not been exposed to blood. So essentially, outer surface protein A is a piece of protein that's on the surface of the Borrelia that's in a dormant phase. It's not active. As soon as the blood gets sucked into the tick, the outer surface protein a starts disappearing and it's place outer surface protein C shows up <laughs> and that probably has something to do with the locomotion of the bacteria. It starts swimming. It starts spiraling, right? So it burrows out of the tick into the tick saliva glands and then down into the host itself. But it doesn't have the outer surface protein A anymore. So if you've got all these antibodies in your blood looking for outer surface protein A, it's going to pass by the bacteria itself. So he was saying, he said, look, the same thing for the testing is like we're testing. He said, I'm testing technology. The Western blot is probably is a really good test. He, said, he says, we're not testing for the right proteins.
1: Yep.
0: We're not testing for the right yep. proteins. And he has a point there. So he's he's pushing, they're looking at some testing technology themselves there, but they're really moving from this canine vaccine into human trials. That's where they're moving. Yep. And their vaccines based on the outer surface protein A. And the C. Now the C is very interesting because
1: that's another aspect of it. Is the C protein actually has multiple variants?
0: Right. So, eight. so having, I think it's eight, seven or eight. Right. So he's the the research. How do I explain this? Imagine a big Irish family.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> and not everybody's got red hair. Some have bright, shiny copper hair. Some have dark auburn hair. One has blonde hair from some Nordic ancestors, and some have different shades of brown. So this is the outer surface protein C. There's variations from, even though you have the same genetic background from the bacteria, there's variations from bacteria to bacteria. And this is not a different strain of Borrelia. This is all Borrelia burgdorferi, but There's a lot of variability in how this protein C gets made. So while it's very specific to the active bacteria, it's hard to create an antigen because if you just do one version of the protein, you miss all the other seven. Yes. So what they did, and this is the amazing part, they identified a subprotein within the outer surface protein C and took a little chunk of that from all the different variants and put it together in a new protein.
1: Which they called a chimera So if anybody remembers what a chimera is from...
0: Shape changer, yeah, right. Shape changing or or face? No, changing.
1: no, no. It's not changing. It's all mashed together. So, a Chimera had the body of a lion and the oh, face of a okay. and the hooves of a goat and oh, the okay. tail of a snake. Okay, that sort of thing.
0: Right. So, they invented this brand new novel protein, and that's what's in the dog vaccine, and that's why this vaccine's working. So, they also include the outer surface protein A. So, yeah. if you have lots of antibodies. A antibodies and the blood gets sucked up into the tick and those antibodies are there and they go to work attacking the Borrelia that's still in the tick. That's great. But some of those Borrelia are going to pass through. Yeah. And that's why you need the outer surface protein C if you're going to do vaccines.
1: If you're going to do a vaccine.
0: So that's the exciting news. It's incredible technology. I mean, if you love to nerd out, I mean, the presentation was incredible. The technology that they've got to identify these proteins, create this novel protein, On a personal note, and this is my opinion, not anything to do, when this vaccine comes out, I am going to let other people be the beta testers. And the reason is you're putting in a novel protein in the body that's never been before in nature. Mm -hmm. I want to see how that's going to react in somebody. I'm not 100% sure. If it's fine, if it's benign and all you do is produce some antibodies and now you're protected from Lyme disease, great. I'll be on the version 1.0, but I'm going to let somebody else, or 2.0. I'm going to let somebody else be the beta tester in this. I want to make sure that it's safe within people because some of these, you know, some of these things make it through trials and there doesn't seem to be problem, but then it shows up once it gets out to the, to a wider audience. So I'm not anti-vaccine necessarily, but I've got this is this is new technology.
1: Oh yeah, I'm not going to be faith. I'm not going to be first
0: in line. Uh, gee, yeah, basically, I'll take my herbs. Thank you very much. <laughs> much more in line with uh, biocidin or classical pearls than yeah. than the than the vaccine. But yes. if it turns out to be okay, I'm not 100 percent opposed. I mean, you know, we have tetanus vaccines out here on the farm and things yeah. like that. So yeah. we're not we're not all opposed to vaccines yeah. i don't think you need a thousand of them for every little bump little wiggle that can happen in life i think we're over vaccinated but anyway that's another anyway, podcast anyway. <laughs> moving right along yes so the uh, bottom line is there's a new vaccine on its way and this outer surface protein c may be part of the new testing as well <laughs> Moving on to our last presenter,
1: Dr. Joe Pedra, who was out of the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And I'm going to let you take this one because there were m- molecule diagrams and I got lost really quickly <laughs> in his presentation. He
0: was talking about the difference in immune system responses between ticks. And fruit flies, and why is this important? <laughs> <laughs> I may struggle, maybe struggle to translate this. But why, why it's important is because they, they, you have a different model, different understanding of how things work. You need to know specifically. It's, it's, you kind of assume, like the fruit fly actually matches up better with human immune system than it, the tick does. So, but what they were able to do is isolate the chemical pathways that are part of the immune system of the tick and they found intervention points that so the, the Borrelia lives well in the mice, it lives well in the ticks right? So part of the immune system of the tick is down regulated while the Borrelia is in there so the the tick doesn't kill the Borrelia, the tick's immune system. They were able to adjust the tick's immune system so that the ticks killed the Borrelia. Yeah. That's Pretty cool. So you could go and spray out a substance in your yard, let's say, Mm -hmm. that would change the ticks out there to kill the Borrelia. In my mind, that's a lot better than maybe inoculating yourself.
1: And see, I have kind of the opposite idea here is because I think if we could inoculate ourselves with this down-regulating protein, we could make the ticks who bite us Kill the kill the bacteria and the ticks, and that might be less because it's not you know you it's not right human. Because you can beta so, test this too. I know, but it's not. It's like it's not dealing with the bac- with the Borrelia bacteria itself. It's yeah, just right. dealing That's,
0: with the human body. So simple, and nothing <laughs> bad ever happens from injecting foreign sh- Substances. So, into when, so
1: when I put on a blue tick suit and call, start talk, calling myself Tick Woman, like yeah, exactly. Cartoon Network 10, 15 years right. ago. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> I'd rather spray out in the yard.
1: Nah. Yes.
0: So, or you could inoculate mice.
1: Or we could inoculate right? mice. Right. I mean, let's,
0: come on. Really? That's, anyway.
1: There are options, is the point. There are options. There are options. So
0: that was that was fascinating so Mm -hmm. they they understood something new about the ticks immune system and how you can modify it support it and it wasn't really genetically modifying it 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 was was just a Adding a protein, protein. right, to change the way it was expressed within the body. So essentially giving the ticks a supplement, turning them into super ticks, (laughs) that would kill the Borrelia. But part of this also, he found out, he just mentioned this in passing, they discovered that the Borrelia protects the tick. So an infected tick is more likely to survive than an uninfected tick. All of you out there who are noticing more and more ticks out there, absolutely correct, because the infected tick's are more hardy and particularly they have a frost protein that they get from the Borrelia or the infection with the Borrelia that prevents them or keeps them, makes them more cold hardy. So the ticks that would normally get killed off by the hard frosts, particularly up here in our area, some of them, more of them are surviving the cold weather. So it's not your imagination. It's not only global warming. You know, we got all that going on too and climate change and what's going on out there with that. But the ticks themselves are tougher because they're infected with the Borrelia. So the more ticks infected, the more ticks are survived, the more ticks are going to go out there. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. All right. That winds up our summary of the presentations. I hope we yep. haven't confused you too much and <laughs> made some sense of the science. It's really exciting. If you get a chance to go to a scientific conference around Lyme disease, I highly recommend you go. The, the treatment side of things is very interesting and very important too. But the hard science there, if you got a little bit of geek on like we do, it's really just wonderful to be around these researchers who dedicated their lives to figuring out yeah, what's going on with Lyme disease. understanding what's going yeah. on, yeah. Lastly, we want to, do a little plug for the Cohn Foundation. We just want to give them kudos. I mean, this is an organization. Mrs. Cohn had Lyme disease, so they have a personal. They're personally affected by the disease. They understand what's going on, they have the wherewithal to fund some of this research. One of the things that came up was that as funding decreases, and they showed a little graph that funding for well, Lyme, Lyme disease,
1: disease was actually decreasing well, a little. It, bit. it
0: increased over the past five years, and in the past year, it's gone down again. Yeah it's so like great we're already way behind the eight ball in terms of funding and now there's even less so when funding starts to decline according to these researchers and they would know cuz their livelihood depends on <laughs> right. getting these grants right if they don't get the grants their labs shut down that the awards the grants awarded by NIH and other government agencies tend to pave the cow paths they become very conservative they don't want to invest in anything new Because it's like venture capitalism. You you can invent, you can invest in IBM and you're going to get very boring returns, or you can invest, invest in a new biotech startup. It could make you a millionaire or you could lose all your money. Right. But you don't know IBM, you know, bless their hearts. Very stodgy, or maybe that there it's not quite because they do some innovation there. But something like an electric company, you're not going to get new technology to come out of your local power company. No, they just produce power. That's all they do. They're not in the business of innovation. And some of these funding for these studies are really doing the same research with a slightly different twist. That's why I'm calling it paving the cow path. It's the same research with you know with a little shinier results. Nothing nothing exotic is going to come out of it. No breakthroughs are going to come out of it. That happens on the fringes. And you need some unencumbered funding and some visionary funding to do that. The government's not going to do that, especially when money's tight. That's going to be in the purview of foundations like the Cone Foundation, the Bay Foundation, these larger... Lime-oriented uh, charitable foundation. So, really, write a thank you note. Tell them good job. Yeah. You know, if there's a an event in your area where they're part of that, be sure to thank the representative for the Cone Foundation or the Bay Area Foundation and tell them thank you for what they're doing. Without those small seed fundings of these, I'm going to call them fringe scientific. It's not really fringe. But it's not cowpath, right? It's not right. the boring same old, same old. They're doing something different without funding new ideas. It's called innovative. Thank you. Without funding innovative ideas within the <laughs> science, we're not gonna get any innovations. It's really that simple. And the government funding is pathetic for Lyme disease to begin with, but then even more pathetic. Patheticer. It's patheticer <laughs> out for these innovative projects that are out there. So hats off to the Cohn Foundation, way to go keep doing what you're doing and supporting the scientists who are doing this amazing research. Yep.
1: And I'm looking forward to going next year and seeing what happens as a result of this year's conference.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Hopefully I'll understand more molecule stuff.
0: (laughs) You will. I promise you're smart. If you've made it this deep into the podcast, a, you've fallen asleep and now my voice is waking you up. Be You're really geeky like we are, or you just love Lime Ninja Radio. If you love Lime Ninja Radio, head on over to iTunes, give us a review. It helps us stay relevant and present in the iTunes searches. So basically how they do it, they've got an algorithm that if you leave a review and get a rating, then you get higher up the searches. So when you search for Lyme disease, you find our podcast. If people can't find the podcast...
1: They don't exactly listen to it, do they? They don't
0: listen. They don't learn. We are the number one podcast out there for Lyme disease. We have tons of interviews. We can really help people. We get emails every week, people saying, I'm so grateful I found you. But you can do your little bit. You know, we can't fund the Cone foundation. Yeah. We millions. can't exactly
1: give $40 million to researchers out there, but and, um, we can. And
0: probably you can't either, but if you can, <laughs> please do. But if you can't, what you can do is going over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. All right, Aurora. Thank you for your help in traveling with me at 2 a.m. down to the conference. And as you long time, lime ninjas know this podcast would not be complete without the lime ninja fact of the day.
1: Did you know a ninja's iPhone never dares to autocorrect? (laughs) ¶¶